What's up, everybody? This episode of Full Auto Friday is brought to you by Rhino Safe. I believe it was last Friday when I had Nelson on. We were discussing or giving advice to somebody about gun ownership. And I made the point that I really believe that safe storage of weapons is something that whether you love or hate guns, it's a bridge gap. Everybody can agree on that. Whether you love the Second Amendment or hate the Second Amendment, we can all agree that guns exist and they should be stored properly. If you have weapons, you need to have safe storage. Check out rhinosafe.com. They make amazing safes from things that can fit next to your bedside table to stuff that could go into a closet, a living room, or in your garage, however you want to get it. It's, there's fire ratings up to 85 minutes at 1,400 degrees, 12-gauge steel. Some of them have up to a 76 long gun capacity with a swing-out rack. They have traditional locks. They have biometric locks. They're amazing. And I keep not only guns in these things, but sensitive items that have value to me. Rhinosafe.com. Check them out and be a responsible gun owner. And on that note, let's do this. Full Auto Friday 41. All right, we are off and running. Here we are again. It's Friday. It's time for another full auto Friday. I'm going to assume that everybody knows the rules. Rapid fire, Q&A. I'll do my best to limit myself to five minutes. No guarantees of any kind. Here we go. Question number one. There's actually two questions for question number one. What are some of the wildest or weirdest transitions you've seen or heard about regarding people who get out of the military and transition into civilian life? As an example, I knew a guy who spent about nine years in SF, had all the tabs and training you could think of from the free fall to scuba to ranger to rigger. Dude ended up getting out after a while and literally just wanting to drive trucks for whatever reason. So here's a guy that can speak multiple languages do all sorts of high-speed shit and was an SF medic, if I remember correctly, and now sits in a truck delivering fuel. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Well, I'll answer this before I get to your second question. I have seen people shotgun pattern after the military. I've seen people do exactly this, drive a truck. I know people who have driven a cab, who became fishermen, uh, and I don't know if the term fisherman includes crabbing, so I'll say they became crabbers. <sighs> Professional snow guides, outdoor activity, uh, river guides, rafting guides, fishing guides. I know a guy who got into porn. Uh, people who contracted and went the LEO route or worked for the federal or state government. You know, your police department, your sheriff's department. A lot of people will contract for the agency. They'll work with and for the FBI. I know guys who've gone into anti-human trafficking. Bartenders started uh, alcohol businesses, knife companies, became pilots. I mean, fill in the blank. It is, I think, an opportunity for a lot of guys to and gals to just leave that world behind and to focus on something completely different. I think a lot of people, to include myself, wanted to be done with the slightly more regimented world of the military and go and explore things that interest them. But 
a lot of people want to have a little bit of a buffer in between. So they want to find a job that has a little bit less noise, something that's just chill, less responsibility. And I actually think I'd enjoy driving a cab, you know, sitting down, talking to people, going where they want to go instead of me trying to decide where the car is always going to end up. So, I mean, I hope those were some good examples for you. Like I said, they run the gambit. Second question, what sort of optics do you prefer on your long-range precision rifles, and what is your favorite all-around caliber for long-range engagements? As an example, do you like running a 338 LM with a Steiner or Leopold? Do you prefer a 50 BMG with Night Force or Unertal? I don't even know what that is. Or a 408 with a Schmidt and Bender? Here's the thing. I'm not an expert in rifles and things that go boom. I'm really not. I love using them. And I don't really get this deep. I like to be able to shoot long range. I generally am going to go with the highest quality value I can get at a price point that I can afford. And the optics that I have found, well, let me just go back a step. In the military, I probably would have played with all of this stuff. Uh, but I usually used what, used what they issued me or what other people recommended. So you could afford really high-quality glass. And by afford, I mean I went and requested it and the taxpayers paid for it, which was pretty awesome. Uh, now that I pay for it, you know, I'm going for maximum quality for minimum price. And one of the best brands that I have found is Maven Optics. And they make a scope. The ones that I have are RS4 or RS3. They're amazing glass. It holds up to just about any other uh, glass that I've put it to side by side. The price point is ridiculously less. And my favorite caliber guns are either a 308 or a 300 Wimag, which are the long range rifles that I have. But I don't get all twisted about the type of ammo that I use. I don't get all twisted about the optic that I use. You know, for most people, a reasonable long distance shot is going to probably be 700 yards and in, if not even closer than that, probably five or 300. So I totally appreciate uh, people who get into the shooting world like this, who have very specific brands that they love and a very specific reticle that they love and a, a caliber of ammunition and a, you know a manufacturer of all of those things. I'm just not that guy. So for me, I prefer not to have long-range engagements. I enjoy shooting. I have guns in my safe. I have optics in my safe, but I really don't get wrapped too far around the axle. Um, some guys do. I'm not that guy, so I am not the best person to answer this question. Go for the best quality you can get for whatever it is that you can afford. Moving on. Number two, dear Scott Stapp, and I'm going to stop you right there. Go fuck yourself, all right? I'm not Scott Stapp. My name's Andy, even though I have been uh, called Scott Stapp for years. Mr. Dudley likes to call me Scott Stapp. And for those of you who don't know, he's the lead singer of an amazing, groundbreaking band, probably the bedrock of American history when it comes to rock and roll, known as Creed. Yes, I know I look like the guy. I've been hearing it for years. So moving on. I recently listened to your story on the Free Range American podcast about you getting your trident taken away. And for those of you who are curious about that story who haven't heard it before, it happened very early on in my career. Go back to that episode of Free Range American. I was on there with Evan and Trevor Thompson, and, uh, and i tell you the whole thing. I'm not going to rehash it right now. Can you talk about some other mistakes you've made as a young SEAL in the team environment, socially or professionally, and the lessons you learned from them? Big fan of the show. I always look forward to hearing your perspective on things. Okay, let me be super crystal clear on this. I have made and continue to make mistakes all the time. God, I've made far too many mistakes 
that I would care to list. And I don't really dwell on them, so I don't even think it would be capable. I would be capable of listing them. What I try to do is I try to learn from my mistakes. Um, I can think of a few things in this environment that I did learn from. You know, I made some of the very classic ones. Showing up late. Um, there was physical punitive punishment that involved that when I was in the military, which is not what I'm recommending, but it took one instance of me being late in that environment. And I'm talking about with my platoon, my operational element at my first SEAL team. And the consequences fit the crime. And I learned from it. But I was also, you know, there's that physical aspect that I went through. And then the leadership sat me down and again, reinforced why that happened and why it is important that being on time is actually five minutes early. It's actually one of my biggest pet peeves now because of the importance that was put on it when I was in the military. I hate being late. I'll do everything I can to be there early. Because like I said, for me, on time is five minutes early. There was a situation, you know, and I talk about this, the power of the written word, of having checklists and being able to follow a structure as opposed to making things up on the fly. That was reinforced to me often when it came to packing lists or when we would be in our mission planning cycle and we'd go up and we would brief and we would brief the first line, second line and third line gear. You know, first line gear being things that are attached to your body. Second line gear, you know, things that you can strap on and it goes on and on and on. Listing out the things that you had to have on you. Uh, there was an incident in Korea. This is actually ties into when I lost my Trident because this was the same trip that I got it back. I was acting as the communicator and I forgot a piece of gear that made communication impossible. And there was an entire operation, albeit in the training environment, this is pre 9-11, that was going to absolutely fail for one reason and one reason only. And it was me. And why was that failure going to occur? Because instead of following the packing list, I was just going to wing it because, hey, look at me. I'm a big, badass Navy SEAL and I know everything. Well, fortunately, when we are in a training environment, we have things called lane graders, and they are members of the training cadre who are there to facilitate the training. And I happen to have a professional and personal relationship with this particular lane grader. And I went up to him and I explained exactly what happened. Well, actually, he came up to me, if I'm remembering this correctly, and he asked why we hadn't made comms. And I told him exactly why, and that it was my mistake and what had happened and what I had forgotten. And instead of airing me out to the leadership, what he did is he left where we were. We were in a special reconnaissance element. We were overwatching a harbor, and we needed to report back ship movement, ship location, so there could be a combat swimmer dive against those ships in the harbor. He went back, and he got me the piece of gear that I had forgotten which allowed me to make comms, which allowed the training evolution to continue. So I learned from that. And then the people in the rest of the training evolution were able to conduct their operation. And it was a mistake that I never made again. Uh, there was another incident that stood out again, pre 9-11, where we were in Nyland. We were doing a desert training facility uh, trip. We were out there for about a month and it was in the summer which means you could fry an egg on your forehead, let alone put it onto the ground. So we were doing, again, interesting how a lot of this comes back to reconnaissance. We were, again, watching or tasked with watching an objective, not a real one, a training objective. And the people that I was with 
to include myself, started to develop a very laissez-faire attitude. So instead of keeping our gear on us, we started shedding our gear, even though we knew we weren't supposed to do that. We needed to be able to move at any given time in case we were compromised. The training cadre, they saw exactly what we were doing. So what did they do? They ambushed us and we were a fucking dumpster fire. An absolute running shit show of gear being thrown everywhere. I was not the senior person in that element, so it didn't fall directly on me, except for the fact it did when it came to my own decision. I should have kept my gear on, but again, I kind of got wrapped up or allowed myself to be wrapped up in what was going on around me and suffered the consequences because of it. We didn't have full catastrophic failure, but again, the training cadre stepped in allowed us to get our shit together, figuratively and literally. We went back and picked up some stuff. And it came up in the debrief afterwards. So again, I'm standing in front of my peers and explaining what the errors were and why. And the errors occurred because I decided to get lazy. And instead of doing what I should have done, which was keeping my gear on me at all time, being ready to go at a moment's notice, I took it off. And we suffered uh, nearly a tactical failure because of it. Neither of those things ever happened to me again because of those lessons that I learned in doing them in that training environment. But again, I've said things that I shouldn't have said in environments that I shouldn't have said that in, said them in. I've mouthed off to people that I shouldn't have mouthed off to. I've said hurtful things. I've lost gear. Um, I've had tactical failures in training environments. It, I've, I've had every manner of mistake humanly possible and probably more than most people that I worked with and I just tried not to repeat them and that is the thing when it comes to mistakes you should expect them to happen try not to repeat them and more than anything try to learn from that mistake moving on I have become a big fan of your podcast. That's awesome. Glad you like it. The guests are interesting. The conversations are great. And it's great to hear about different people's experiences in life. I agree. That's actually why I started the podcast. I'm curious, with all of the things you've done in your career in life, I have noticed you do not talk much about your experience flying airplanes on the podcast. Your bio says you have 3,500 hours flight time and you're type rated in the Citation Jet and Gulfstream 4. I'm guessing with those credentials, you also have your Air, uh, ATP, which is a type of a license that in itself is quite an accomplishment on top of everything else you have accomplished. I was wondering if you would ever consider having a podcast episode dedicated to aviation. With all the other topics, this may take a back seat. Well, I tell you what, I love flying. I just haven't flown in years, so I'm not current at all. And it just, it's not something that I want to avoid talking about. It just never seems to naturally come up in conversation. So I will briefly walk you through my aviation, I'm not even going to call it career, my aviation experience. When I moved to San Diego from Virginia Beach, so I was leaving development group and checking into BUDS as a second phase instructor, the command at the time decided, and I can't say exactly why they decided to do this, but I suspect they wanted to increase the throughput at BUDS. They decided to forego a cycle of classes in winter hell week, which created a very large gap in time between when we had a class in second phase. So I essentially checked into a command and was told there was nothing to do for a few months. And as I was driving home that day, we lived near an airport in uh, Chula, uh, not Chula Vista. That's where I used to end up living. And we lived in, uh, not, was it Santee? Yeah, it was Santee, Santucky. 
and there was an airport right there. There was a little Cessna. As I was literally driving past the freeway or on the freeway past the airport, there was a little Cessna coming in, you know, left wing up, right wing up, and, you know, side slipping left and right, and you could hear the engine. And it was somebody learning how to fly. I was like, damn, that sounds interesting. So I got off the freeway, and I drove over to the school, and I said, I want to learn how to be a pilot. And that's how I started my first time ever in an aircraft. They have a little demo flight. And you basically go do some left-hand patterns and land the airplane a few times, wink, wink, meaning the other person pretty much has their hands on the controls, the one who actually knows how to fly. But it was really interesting. I had the time. So I got my private pilot license in about 40 hours, and I wasn't really planning on doing anything with it beyond that. And fast forward a few years. I was working for an organization where the owner was living out in Arizona, and they were tired of driving back to Santa Cruz. So he called me up and said, hey, I remember you have your pilot's license. We're going to get an airplane. You start flying, get current again, dive back into this. And that was my opportunity to continue down the aviation path. So first I had to get recurrent, which took, I would say, I don't know, 10 to 15 hours until I was feeling comfortable again. And by when you get your private pilot's license, if it's a beautiful, sunny day, you can go fly, and it's great. But in San Diego, coastal weather, fog, uh, clouds, you know, weather patterns do, in fact, roll through, as they do pretty much everywhere else. If you want to fly in those conditions, you need your instrument rating. So I dove into my instrument rating, and my suggestion to people hearing this who are considering getting your instrument rating, the piece of advice I would give you is do it all in one shot. Be as consistent as humanly possible and get it done in as little time as possible. There's a ton of studying. There's a written test, a verbal test, a practical test. Keep it fresh in your mind. Don't do one lesson and then take three weeks off and then do another lesson. It's very hard to do it that way. So get it knocked out. So I got my instrument rating, and then I believe I got my multi-engine rating, which is exactly that, flying an airplane with two engines. Then I got my commercial license. Those two, I might have flip-flopped. I might have gotten my commercial first and then my multi-engine. I'm not sure. And after that point, I got my type rating in the Gulfstream G4. I had an opportunity to continue my training, and the organization that I was working for at the time, we could kind of see the writing on the wall when it came to private aviation. So it was my attempt to stay ahead of the demand of the organization. So I went to an initial type rating course for G4, which was done up in um, Flight Safety Long Beach, classroom, simulator. Uh, it was an incredible course, and it fit very well into things that I can perform well at, which is checklists. It was all checklist-based, procedure and checklist, and communication with another pilot because it's mandatory to pilot aircraft. So I was able to complete that training with a lower-than-typical amount of hours and then started flying in the right seat of the Gulfstream as um, a Part 135 pilot, which is a charter pilot. So when I wasn't flying for the organization that I was directly working for, I was doing Gulfstream flights, which led to an opportunity in a Citation jet. So I got my Citation 525S rating, which stands for single pilot. Um, it's one of the few jets that you are, you. it has seats for both pilots, and it's always, I would say, better to fly with two pilots in the cockpit, a left and a right seat. But the 525S allows you to fly the CJ series, uh, you know, one through four, with a single pilot only. The workload is heavy. You need to have your head you need to have your head on the swivel and your A game if you're going to fly especially in complicated um, airspace environments like the Los Angeles San Diego area are. Uh, but it was an amazing 
uh, opportunity and I took it. And at the end of that, when I was getting my rating in the Citation Jet, I also received my ATP, which is essentially your airline transport uh, pilot license, the same license that, and I might have said that slightly wrong. It's pretty close to that though. Airline, it's the highest license you can get in the US. It's the same one that your Delta and Southwest and United pilots have up front. And having said all of that, I loved it. I was able to rack up those 3,500 hours and I haven't flown in years and I'm no longer current and I'd have to go back through retraining for all of that. But it was, again, something that was new. It was incredibly challenging, a whole different rule set, a whole different vernacular talking on the radios. And I got to see really cool places in the world and fly really cool people around. So hopefully that answered your question and gives you a better idea of the aviation experience that I have. Maybe one day I'll have the opportunity to sit down and do a a complete episode dedicated around aviation or sit down and talk with a pilot. I would love to be able to do that. But... We shall see. That's more a scheduling issue than it is me trying to avoid that particular topic. Question four. I'm 23 and I work out frequently. I'm very committed to fitness, but have always and but have always wanted to try BJJ. Unfortunately, I dislocated my ankle very badly a few years ago to the point where multiple PTs have told me it will need to be replaced. So I'm wondering how you work around your injury since it was a lot worse than mine. Huge fan of the podcast. Question to you would be, Replaced when? Is this like an imminent replacement? Meaning if you got it replaced right now, your quality of life would go up and maybe you could recover to a level that you could attack BJJ and not really worry about it? Or we're talking replaced when you're old and all of our bodies are falling apart and this is just a matter of going to the mechanic shop. So I'd start there. Um, Let's say it's something that can't be fixed right now or it's not worth fixing right now. The only advice I can give you is be honest and upfront about your injury. Make sure that your training partners and your coach are aware of your injury and then do the best that you can to train around it. Uh, I have some issues with my left ankle as well. And one of the best things that I can do is be proactive. I can protect that ankle by making sure, hopefully, or at least attempting to making sure it doesn't go into a compromising position. But if it does, or it looks like it's heading in that direction, tap early, tap often. And that's the beauty One of the beauties of BJJ to me is that you are simulating movements. You know, when it comes to choke, it could be, or a strangle, because there is a difference. I understand that, John Danaher. You know, some of them are blood, some of them are air. And if you held them, the person would die. But you don't, because there's an immense amount of trust with your training partners. When it comes to the joints, you know, the joint locks, whether it's a kimura, an arm bar, a wrist lock, or an ankle lock, they're designed to snap those things in two. And if you kept going, it would. But you don't because you respect your training partners and you realize as an individual that you can't learn and practice without those training partners. So there's that level of trust and the understanding between the two people. It's a beautiful thing. You're you're practicing something very dangerous, but you're doing it in a manner where it doesn't have to be dangerous and both individuals can grow from it. That is predicated on them knowing you have an injury, though. So be honest, train around it, and... If you start down this path and you find that it is aggravating it or irritating it, you know, you're going to have to come to that place as to whether or not it's worth it. Maybe it's time at that point to take a pause, fix your ankle, and then come back as opposed to continuing to, you know, gur your way through it and then just your quality of life tanks. That's not the goal uh, of jujitsu at all. And I, I don't want anybody to have a negative quality of life. So hopefully that helps answer that question. 
The last question for the day, this one's a touch long. Here we go. Andy, I have had a problem with my sister's boyfriend for almost the whole time they have been together, which is three years. He is disrespectful and ungrateful for the roof my mom puts over his head. He walks around with his head down looking miserable all of the time, jokingly calls my mom and sister bitches. He threatens to punch my dog in the face the other day, and last night he was directly disrespectful to me for the first time. Last night, two of our cats were fighting, so I went to break it up. On my way there, my sister came out and said, are you going to break that up? And me being a smart-ass brother said, no, I'm going over here to do some push-ups. My sister's boyfriend immediately said, do some pull-ups too. He said that because I'm regularly doing pull-ups throughout the day, and in my opinion, he is obviously insecure about the pull-ups I do to have made a comment like that. I started doing sets of pull-ups for his request, and after every set I yelled, I just did some more. I probably did that for an hour and helped calm me down a little bit. As I sit here the next morning, I still want to rip his head off. I'm confused on how he can talk disrespectfully and still be a member of this family. I'm confused on how he can speak to me like that in front of my sister and still have a place in her mind as a nice person. If him and I fight, someone will need an ambulance ride, and that someone isn't me. I'm training to be a SEAL, and I'm on the verge of ripping this guy's head off and possibly throwing my dreams away. I understand that ripping him apart may not be worth it, but I also understand that this guy is nothing but a punk and deserves no place in our family. How do I get past this situation without physically hurting this person? I told my sister we need to talk, and she said, I don't have much to say. You, we were both in the wrong last night, so I can't talk to my sister about it. My mom said that my sister just has to figure it out on her own like she did with my dad. But how can my mom sit back and say she'll have to figure it out like I did with your father? Why can't my mom, why can my mom not say you're going to end up marrying an asshole just like your father? I want this guy gone so bad. And the only way I feel it will happen is hurting him so bad he's scared to ever come around again. I've kept my mouth shut their, their entire relationship. But after he was disrespectful to me personally last night, my whole mindset of if my sister's happy, then I'll be nice is over. I have MEPS, the military enlistment processing station tomorrow, which for those listening, this is he's this is the beginning process of going into the military. And if all goes and if all goes good there, soon I won't have to deal with him. But that doesn't change the fact that this disrespectful punk is a part of our family. I don't even know what question I want answered, but I do know that I want your outlook on this situation, even if it's you telling me to chill and check my ego. Thank you for taking the time to read this. Whew. All right, Daddy, let's get a sip of water for this. Uh, okay, how do I attack this best? I'm going to start by saying this. What you tolerate in your presence is your standard. So when you ask yourself how this person can be disrespectful and ungrateful and still have a roof over his head, it's because that disrespect and ungratefulness has been tolerated and it is now the standard. You have the ability to leave this situation. And I will say your mom and sister have the ability to change the situation as well. But you leaving solves nothing. Okay, It's still going to leave your sister and your mom dealing with what I'm going to call a piece of shit. Anybody who called my sister or my mother a bitch is leaving the house 
that is provided for them and they're not coming back. And on that, let me say this, there are escalations, right? There is a continuum of escalation that can occur here before you are at, to use your terms, the ripping his head off phase. The first one is that behavior gets addressed immediately, not two days after your mom or sister gets called a bitch. The second that it comes out of that person's mouth, it's addressed and it is told in no uncertain terms that that does not continue that that is not tolerated. And actually, I would go a further step and say, you know what, you're going to go ahead and apologize for that right now. So it would start with verbal. If it escalates to something physical, I'm not going to say that that wouldn't be called for in a situation like this, but make sure you at least go through that continuum of escalation. Okay. You don't have to go nuclear, even if you're upset. And that's something that you're going to need to learn especially if you're going to go down the SEAL pipeline. Another thing you're going to have to learn when you go down the SEAL pipeline, to me at least, the job of being a SEAL, the job that you are going after is about standing up for people who are unwilling or unable to do it on their own. And what I'm talking about when I say that is your mom and your sister. So if you leave without addressing this issue with this piece of shit, you are heading down a path that I don't think is correct. You're pursuing an occupation that at its foundation is rooted in doing something in situations like this. So what I would recommend to you is absolutely do something before you leave. If this behavior has been tolerated for a long time, well, I can't tell you that I know what the outcome is going to be, but my suspicion is, is it may go beyond something that is verbal. I would talk to your mom and I would talk to your sister first before confronting this person. And I would make it very clear what it is that you're going to say, what the intention that you have is by interacting with and interjecting yourself into this situation and let them know that it is coming. Okay. You probably don't want to shotgun them with this. Uh, your mom should not be saying things like your sister's going to end up marrying an asshole just like your father. Okay. That's idiotic. For one, she shouldn't be saying that to. Uh, the children of your father. I don't care if your dad was an asshole. I don't know anything about them. I don't know anything about their relationship. But what I do know is your life is not improved by your mom saying things like that. Your sister's life is not improved by your mom saying things like this and allowing a douchebag to live under the roof that she is providing for them. There's a lot of wrong that's going on here. And now let's talk about your sister. If your sister is tolerating this behavior now, at, well, I don't know how old she is. Let's call her in her late teens and early 20s. It's not going to get better, okay? Nobody should be treated like this. Nobody should be disrespected. Um, and nobody should be providing things for somebody else that they are ungrateful for. So how would you want your daughter to be treated, right? I want you to fast forward. I don't know how old you are, but I want you to fast forward. Let's say you have a... Uh, phenomenal relationship. You find a, the woman of your dreams and you have a daughter and you now find somebody who is talking to your daughter or treating your daughter in the manner that this person is. Would you do something about it or would you just tolerate it? I think I know the answer to that. Okay. And that should be very telling for you as well. This situation sucks. I'm sorry that you're in it, but my suggestion to you is solve this situation interject yourself into this situation appropriately before you leave. Because if you leave this behind, you're headed to the wrong community. The community that you are headed towards is full of people that wouldn't tolerate this behavior. 
You shouldn't tolerate it either. Deal with this mess before you continue down that path. And that's all I have for this part. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to tune in, whether you're listening on an audio-only platform or you're watching on YouTube. I appreciate that you take the time every week to tune in. People ask me a lot, what can they do to help me spread the word? And the answer is actually embedded in the question. The biggest thing you guys can do to help me if you enjoy the podcast and you think it would be helpful to others is subscribe and Share it with other people. And if you have the time, go on to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating and a review. If you think the podcast sucks, tell me it sucks and leave a zero-star review or the lowest stars possible. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, you can go to clearedhotpodcast.com. And there is a contact me button right there, which will land in my inbox. And the last thing, if people are interested in helping out, what you can do is fly the old flag. And by that, I don't mean an actual flag because I don't have any of those. I'm talking about t-shirts or sweatshirts or hats, whatever it may be. Again, clearedhotpodcast.com. Click on the shop tab and hopefully something in there looks like it would be an item you would like to wear around town. And then you could tell people what it is when they ask you. But that is it. The biggest thing I can say is thank you. I truly appreciate it. And until next time, see you.